0: Thank you for joining us on our journey to the top of Sani, South Africa's iconic mountain pass. My name is Holger Meyer, and I travel the world in search of beer and adventure. In the first part of this series, we visit Peel's Honey for a honey tasting with sommelier Derek Dos Santos. From Peel's Honey, we take the R617 through Boston and the scenic Umkumas River Valley, and we are now heading to Bulwer where we are visiting Hans at the Wild Sky Paragliding School and Backpackers Lodge. Before we go to the interview with Hans, just a quick note to say that a day after our interview, there was a tragic fire at Wild Sky and everything went up in flames. Afterwards, we will be talking to some of the paragliding community members. We start the interview with a few trivia facts about my hometown, Paul Petersburg. Hey Hans, the only thing I know about paragliding is that they do it on the Dumbi mountain near Paul Petersburg where I grew up. But uh, I don't think there's a permanent club or school there. I think they come and go As they please.
1: That's right. It's just a flying site. We're the only actual flying school on the east coast of South Africa between Port Elizabeth and Nelspray.
0: Okay. Have you been to Port Petersburg?
1: Many times. Oh, okay. (laughs) Okay. Many times. I've done lots of flying there. Yeah. I'm actually in a WhatsApp conversation this morning with somebody trying to organize for for us all to go there as a club at the end of September.
0: Uh, I'd love to see that. Yeah.
1: So I know that Paul Petersburg has got the world's only German-speaking cricket team. <laughs> <laughs> That's how much I know about Paul Petersburg. And the guys there like to start drinking beer at 8 o'clock on a Sunday morning. And the Valpre- at the Valpre plant that was there, the water in the house is undrinkable.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've clearly been there a few times. Yeah. What uh, makes it a good spot to fly from?
1: So I said this about 20 years ago to, uh, go to a journalist. I said, well, it depends on if there's a road up the mountain or not.
0: Oh, uh, okay. And there's a road up the mountain.
1: Yeah, and it's a big mountain, and it actually does face a lot of wind direction. So you can take off in just about any wind direction because it, with paragliding, we're very weather dependent. Mm. Okay. And... So, Port Petersburg uh, gets a quite strongish coastal winds, and also gets quite strongish northwesters. That's why I'm here in Bulwa because we don't get those strong northwesters as often, or the strong coastal breeze. Mm. But um, Port Petersburg does have some good flying conditions. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I, mean, I think the furthest flight from Port Petersburg from Dumbi Mountain is about 120 kilometres. Just um just slightly short of what the longest flight here in Bulwa is.
0: You've been flying for a long time. This is a completely different world to me, but it's such a close knit community, it seems like.
1: Yes it is. So
0: if you're not a, if you're not an insider, you're not even aware of it. I mean I I don't know how often I've driven past Bulwa and I know there's something that happens on the mountain, but I don't know what happens on top.
1: Well, there's a lot of wildlife. Yeah. Um and because there's a road up the mountain, it means it's more accessible. So there's a lot of research done on the mountain um from zoology and botany side of things. Uh KZN has done quite a bit of research up there. So what because of that, they've discovered there's a species of butterfly that lives in like two hectares of the top of the mountain and nowhere else.
0: Wow. <laughs> okay.
1: Yeah, so there's stuff like that that happens around you. Okay. There's, um, there are baboons, there's reedbuck, there's orbi, there's all sorts of animals, and there's actually quite a bit of hiking that happens on the mountain. Um, two days ago on Women's Day, there's people that hiked up to the peaks. Via, there's Bushman paintings on the mountain. There's a cave with Bushman paintings. I went via that. It's probably one of the easiest accessible Bushman painting sites around because it's like less than a Less than a kilometer walk from where you park your car. They're, they're all over the place. Mm. Yeah, and um, there's a lot of bird life around Boa. Bula. Bo is quite popular with um, birders because we've got the the Afromontan Scarp Forest. We've got the grassland. We've got the high f- mountains. We've got the low felt. Everything within like a 5K radius.
0: And are there guides that uh, that take there people? Are, in? Actually, yeah. Okay. And where do the people stay? Is that is that uh, Mountain Park Hotel going
1: again? Some people stay at the Mountain Park Hotel. Quite a lot of people, it's day trips. People staying in Underburg, Crichton, day trips from Marisburg, stuff like that.
0: Yeah, it's quite easily accessible from yeah. f- even from Durban, I guess.
1: Yeah. So on Women's Day, we were flying. I had quite a lot of tandem flights to do. And on. One of the flights, the vultures came past. So we're flying quite close to the Cape vultures, and then a bit later on we're flying quite close to falcons, as well as uh, jackal buzzards, which are quite a standard bird around here. We get quite close to them as well.
0: Okay, so I guess the, the birders would, should all go, go for a tandem flight.
1: Absolutely, so that they know what the birds are doing.
0: Yeah. <laughs> okay. Um, maybe tell us what it, what it involves to do a tandem flight.
1: Well, you've got to book on a day that there's decent weather at least. Because mm. okay, we need, easterly winds are the best, uh, which is quite a common wind here in KZN, especially southern KZN. and northern KZN it's more northerly winds, north northwesterlies, especially when you get to the um, northern sections of the Drakensberg, um, Ladysmith, Newcastle area. And that's more in the mornings and in the afternoons. You get the sea breeze pushing through. Boa is got some very specific weather with big valleys around it, which sort of generate their own winds and funnel the winds in the right direction for flying here in Boa. Okay. So, convenience-wise, um, reliability of weather, Boa comes in. We're not the best cross-country sites in the world. Okay. Um, even though we've got some areas in Bo in South Africa that are very very good for that. For instance, in Northern Cape. Guys fly very long distances there. Um, what Boa is, is a very good beginner and intermediate flying site. Okay. Which is what I actually need for what I'm doing.
0: Yeah. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit of how you started um, or how you ended up uh, doing this sport?
1: Well, um, I learned to fly paragliders in 1989. So it's quite a while ago, and then after about four years of paragliding, I qualified as an instructor, and I was just doing it sort of part-time to start off with, and then myself and my partner, Craig Atwell, ended up being quite busy, so we decided we'd actually start doing this full-time, and well, the rest is history, as they would say, you know? Mm. And where are you from? Where did you grow up? I grew up north of Durban, around the Stanger area. Okay, okay. And I moved to Bull basically because of the flying here and the weather here and the reliability of the weather, but also um, about 27 years ago, 28 years ago, I got a phone call from a lady who had a house here in Bull and says, hey, I've got a house in Bull that's standing empty and I need somebody to um, live in it. Would you like to rent it for 250 rand a month? So I thought, well, I'll try that for a bit. Yeah. And here is the lamb.
0: Okay, and and I guess as for the school, you don't need much infrastructure up there.
1: Well, um, to teach paragliding, you basically need an open field, slopes um, facing to the right winds, but we do actually have a lodge here, we have a whole setup up here. Um, ideally, if the Civil Aviation Authority of South Africa had their way, we'd have a we'd have a lot more infrastructure at every single paragliding school because we do fall under the civil aviation regulations. So we have some very strict uh, regulations that we have to adhere to. So because of that, we do have infrastructure. For tandem paragliding, there's no previous experience needed. You don't have to be specifically fit or anything. We do have a weight limit of 100 kilograms maximum.
0: Oh, that counts me out. I'm. I'm very glad to hear.
1: <laughs> and um, so, for stronger wind, when we have strong winds, we can take people up to about 115 kilograms. But generally, with normal wind flying conditions, I don't like to take people over 100 kilograms. Okay. Um, because the weight limit on my tandem paraglider is 220 kilograms, and so the weight actually includes not just body weight of the people flying but also all the equipment so the oh, harnesses okay. the guide and stuff like that mm. you don't need to be specifically fit or anything like that um, we can take people age is not really a problem anybody from five years old upwards can come for tandem flight. through to I think the oldest person I've ever taken was my mother at 80 years old um, for learning to fly and physically disabled, we can take people who are physically disabled. Okay. Not of a serious level, but, um, yeah. yeah. Okay. You don't have to be able to run a marathon or anything like that.
0: Yeah.
1: Yeah. Um, for learning to fly yourself, um, it's um, yeah, you do need to be able to run a little bit. Um, The first day of training is very strenuous, and everybody remembers that. We have a video that says, um, uh, goes along the lines of the reason the first day of training is like it's probably the most exciting thing you've done for a long time. So that's why the first day of training stands out in most people's memories. That's not true. The reason why the first day stands out is because of all the hard work. Because you run down the slope and then walk back up again. Run down the slope, walk back up again. Many times. Without a, without a paraglider. Well, with a paraglider, yeah. So carrying it back up the hill again, yeah. Uh, okay. On the first day. <laughs> but luckily, that's just the first day. Second day is normally already a lot easier. Then after that, it becomes quite easy. People ask about um, the cost of paragliding. Well... Initially, the initial cost to get the equipment and all that, there is you can spend quite a bit of money on that. But once you have your equipment, it's very simple. After that, um, the main cost is petrol, money to get to you wherever you're going to go fly, and beer money for afterwards. <laughs> people do drink a bit of beer afterwards, generally.
0: Yeah. Okay. Well, that helps with the theme of of the of the trip.
1: One of our regular pilots actually brews his own beer at home. He's got his own craft beer that he brews, and it's a really good beer. Oh, wonderful.
0: Yeah. And does one have to pay to fly on those those sites?
1: Um, some flying sites have got site fees, some of them don't, depending on uh, who the site owner is and stuff like that. We have a paragliding club, the Boer Air Sports Club, that manages the flying sites. So if you remember, that includes a site fee. If you're not a member, it's 30 rand a day. Okay. So, it's actually not a lot of money.
0: And how long does it take to learn to fly on your own?
1: Well, you'll be flying on your first day.
0: Oh, okay.
1: But only a meter, you start off with the first flight to like half a meter off the ground and five seconds long and then it becomes a meter off the ground ten seconds and five meters and I I think on the first day you get to close to like one minute yeah, 45 seconds, one minute in the air at times. Okay. 20, 30 meters off the ground on our training slopes. And then the second day, we get up to two-minute flights, stuff like that.
0: And is that on a flat piece of, of ground?
1: Well, gentle slopes. So as we progress, the slopes get slightly steeper. So to, to the, you the glide angle of the gliders... It's generally between about one and seven, so for every meter of height you're losing going about seven meters forward. that's on the school gliders. the intermediate gliders now get like up to one in nine, one in ten. so more glide angles, so you don't need a steeper slope to fly, but they are more tricky to fly. so we start off on very, very slow, boring, very forgiving wings to start off with.
0: Because we, we're on our way to Sani Pass, can one fly off of Sani Top?
1: Um, You can. You can. It's not the easiest flying site in the world in the sense that being at close to 3,000 meters, the air is quite a lot thinner. Okay. Which means you need to run a lot faster to get off the mountain. Okay. And there are no really clear landing fields lower down in Sani Pass. It's all quite steepish slopes. There are some places to land. But there's, it's not like an, an abundance of landing field. You need to be skilled at landing in small areas and difficult terrain.
0: Mm. And there might be some immigration problems as well.
1: We've never really had that problem, even though we've flown past the border post at the bottom, but then you just come back to the border post and tell them, um, even though you're coming from the South African side, you say, I'm coming into South Africa and because there's lots of hikers around Sani Pass, they seem to understand. Uh, Okay. I've never had any strange questions asked before. (laughs)
0: Hans, thank you very much for your time and sharing a little bit about Bulwer. Sure thing. That was Hans from Wild Sky Paragliding. And now we are talking to Gary Amstutz, long-time member of the paragliding community, who first introduced me to Hans. Gary, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you very much, Olga. I'm glad to be here.
0: So, Gary, you introduced me to Hans. Um, You've obviously been flying there before. Um, Tell us what happened.
2: Yeah, obviously you don't know all the details. Um, I got a a message on Facebook uh, from a friend of mine. And um, sadly, there was a fire on the property. Um, Hans has a a lodge, um, which is sort of the clubhouse for the flying community in that area. And um, he has a, a couple of chalets there. I think they do Airbnb or whatever it is. And also a shed, I think, which is attached to the lodge, lodge with all the paragliding equipment then. And, and that's their livelihood. Um, they've got student wings in there, which they obviously use for instruction. They've got tandem wings, uh, which they use to share the joys of flying with other people. And obviously it's a, a form of revenue as well. And uh, everything went up in flames uh, tragically. Um, again, I don't know all the details of this stage. I'm sure in a follow-up interview with Hunts so you can give him those details. Um, but just imagine not only your sort of house b- sort of you know burning down, but your all your livelihood going you know and I, I know in, in this country a lot of people have had that over the last couple of years unfortunately, um, but just literally not in a split second but probably in a half an hour, um, they lost absolutely everything then absolutely tragic. Talk to us about the community.
0: Of, of paragliding obviously it's not a it's not a massive community but
2: uh it seems like you guys are close it is um it's, it's probably as close to a family as you'd get you know i mean there's there's lots of aviation sports and the there are close to communities i think in in the whole industry per se then but um, paraglide is probably one of the smaller of the aviation sports then Um, possibly easier to get into um, although there are license requirements and you can't teach yourself you've got to go through a course um, it's probably the easiest entry I think you can get a second hand wing for a reasonable amount of money as opposed to sort of going the power flying route to helicopters or whatever you're going to do where nowadays you probably do need to lose half a kidney or a kidney to be able to afford it or have a a big benefactor so yeah one would think that um, the, the tribe would be a little bit bigger than it is at the moment and there are various sort of reasons why and lots of theories about that. But there seem to be a lot of people that do get into the sport. Uh, but for various reasons, um, those sort of probably know, 70 or 80 percent of those people sort of filter out over the next couple of years then. Um, and that's a whole other discussion in itself then. So I, I don't know. You'd have to speak to Hans or one of the other people about the exact numbers. Um, I have sort of in my mind a figure of about a thousand. It might be a little bit less or about be a bit more. But for a whole country, that's tiny. You know, you look at um, a country like Switzerland, where I think the number of active pilots is 30, 40, 50,000 then. And it's a, probably the size of KwaZulu-Natal or smaller, basically, then. Yeah. Um, so the, the tribe is quite small. Um, I'd say probably most people know <laughs> everybody else in the in the paragliding fraternity. And we're probably jumping ahead a little bit here then, but it was wonderful, wonderful to see um, you know, Hans and Ria have been going for, I think, 20, 25 years. They're one of the, f- the first people that started paragliding and paragliding schools here in South Africa. Um, I'd love to know the numbers, but Hans and Ria have taught a huge number of people how to how to paraglide and, and share the absolute joys of, of, of flying, of free flying for that matter. Um, and what's happened now within 24 hours is, is someone started a bit of a, a backer buddy campaign or GoFundMe or whatever you want to call it. Um, And apart from the money that was raised, which was unbelievable, there was a massive amount of donations um, in terms of equipment. So as far as I have established, they can probably get back on their feet almost immediately, you know, flying tandems and perhaps with a couple of student wings. Um, The monetary contributions themselves was absolutely enormous and heartwarming and I'm sure will help towards the rebuilding process. But um, what was more heartwarming were the comments there, you know, and just coming from everyone from fellow students um, from other schools I guess a little bit of competition from a business sense then Um, not only just expressing their sadness and and grief about what had happened but donating equipment as well and saying how can we help you know and that's that's a a true family and and fraternity I think it is then Um, you know needless to say training people for 20-25 years with where we are in South Africa they've now got students and their tribe all over the world yeah um, there's probably, I think one person put something on there that's is probably one of Hans's students flying on every continent in the world. <laughs> I say Hans, it's Hans and Rio. They're both instructors. Yeah. Um, and that's fantastic. You know, the, the world is a smaller place now then. And it's nice that people could rally together, not just in South Africa, but from all over the world. And uh, yeah, I, I unfortunately haven't had a chance to see them myself. Um, uh, I'd like to, when I'm, I'm next year, obviously go and have a little bit of a chat and see hopefully how the rebuilding process is going. Um, but yeah, it's it's a, a, a heartbreaking story and a heartwarming story as well, in terms of how the, the tribe rallied around one of their sort of peers and colleagues and comrades. and um, I think they'll be bigger, better, and stronger going forward. Fantastic, Gary. Um, when did you start uh, paragliding? Um, yeah, about probably about seven years ago. Um, I've always had the, the aviation bug as well. My dad was a, a private pilot, and I flew often with him. Um, I got into um, Sailplane or gliding when I was at Varsity, um, and I've been doing that for a long time, although I haven't flown sailplanes now for about three or four years. Um, paragliding um, was just something else, you know. At that stage, it's a, it's a little bit of a, um, a different story here, but at that stage, so sort of the paragliding and the gliding world didn't really sort of meet, you know, the one viewed the other as a little bit skeptical. Um, and I probably would have started paragliding before that, you know, if, if I didn't maybe have a, a sort of slightly prejudiced view about what the sport was, et etc, et etc. Um, anyway, needless to say, I, I did start paragliding and the bug bit immediately. Um, it's also a form of free flying. Um, but now as opposed to having this you know this big machine without an engine, as a, with a glider that you can kind of get into and rely on other people to get up in the air and sort of share your sport. Now you can literally put a, I think the modern backpacks and some wings are less than 10 kilograms. Um, A massive sort of part of the sport is now something called hike and fly then, um, where you can combine your love of hiking and your love of flying. Um, And you can literally put this 10 kg backpack on with this, you know, (laughs) a little tiny harness and a bit of fabric. You can climb up the mountain and if the conditions are good, then you fly back down again and go for a bit of a ride then. And um, yeah, it's it's just opened up the world. And I I think the sport is in a much better place now than it's ever been before then.
0: Tell us a little bit about Wild Sky and Bulwer. What are the facilities
2: there? In Rio, I've got a, a special spot in South Africa. They've got uh, Bulwer Mountain, which is right there. The, the lodge is at the foot of Bulwer Mountain. In fact, um, when, you, yeah, when you land, you can actually land right outside the lodge and walk a couple of meters and have your first beer or whatever, whatever else you prefer to drink. Um, but the mountain it's, itself is absolutely fantastic. Um, you know, it's... I, don't know the exact heights, I can't remember it then, but you perched up there um, looking towards howick Maritzburg with this beautiful scenery and beautiful vista. Um, And the conditions are normally fantastic. Uh, There are a couple of, Hans is quite lucky, there are a couple of other sites around, so if the wind is not blowing in the right direction or the right strength, he's got a couple of other flying sites. Um, In terms of the flying itself, um, some of the older and bolder pilots have done remarkable flights from there. Um, often flying to the Berg. I think that's quite a common route then, going off to Underberg. There were stories of people flying to, to sort of Splashy Fen when Splashy was on and having <laughs> a bit of a twirl there and then landing. Um, and I, t- I believe there's some pilots that have flown sort of as far as sort of Moira over that direction, which is really going across no man's country. And you need to have a, <laughs> a big heart and, and be very, very brave to sort of go that direction. Um, but yeah, it's it's a lovely area of the country to fly. Conditions can be quite strong, which is a little bit intimidating for some people, um, but also a great place to learn. You know, there are times in the mornings and afternoons uh, where we get something called a valley release, um, which is just this you know, absolutely smooth flying conditions, which is a perfect environment to learn in. Obviously, then. So, yeah. Yeah. Uh, a great spot. We got lovely spots in South Africa to paraglide. We're, we're very, very lucky. Um, you know, from the coastal flying sites to you know the Drakensberg, obviously, and then some inland flights, inland sites as well. Then, so um, to anyone sort of from afar that's interested in coming this direction, book your flight and come and visit Hunts and Rio when mm-hmm. eventually they get their their lodge back up and going again.
0: Then Gary put me in touch with another paragliding community member, Emma Emanuel has been up at Wild Sky helping. Hans and Ria, over the weekend. And as it turns out, Emma is not only a member of the paragliding community, she is also a brewer. Hey Emma, thanks for joining us. Um, I've been following what's happening up at Wild Sky Paragliding and I'm so glad to see some brewers are involved in helping out there. Oh
3: yeah, uh, there's a few of us, I think, there's about three yeah, I think we, we're quite ready to do a little bash up there, a little Bri mini festival, um, take up a bunch of beer, all home brewed, and just get that place going again, you know, and start the rebuild, um, and just create a bit of a watch this space, see what's happening here. And I think, as you know, as devastating as the fire was, I think it's going to be, I think it's going to be good for them. To reignite something that they might have lost through COVID Um, and just getting people involved again and helping and bringing the community back together. I mean, Hans is, you know, he's an amazing human, and I don't think they deserve it. Like I said, to to watch the community come back and help them and the amount of flowers they've already been given and sponsors they've been given, and it's just quite breathtaking, actually. Um, to to see it all come come back together so quickly, you know, just in that weekend I was here. Now, I mean, the fire was on Wednesday. I was there on Saturday and Sunday. We'd already been given four gliders. You know, people just, we already raised a bunch of money on um, Backer Buddy. Yeah, it's been it's quite cool, and I'm quite keen to make him a couple of batches of and I you know, really just get a vibe going.
0: And I think it would be wonderful if you guys can organise an event and help raise funds and even get the community together again.
3: Yes, definitely. Yeah. And like I think just, you know, it's two very different communities but I think very much um same mindsets in the sense that we all you know support each other and and there to help and to you know, make something else better, because it doesn't benefit us, doesn't mean, doesn't mean it can't be done.
0: Yeah, and and I guess he doesn't have enough traffic to have a, a full-time brewery or bar there.
3: It's weird, because I've, I have been thinking about it, because not that there's a lot of people that stay in Goa as such, but it's definitely a pass-through, so... If you're on your way to Edinburgh, if you're on your way to Glasgow, you know, which are huge holiday destinations for many people, um, and if there was a stop, oh, like in Gower, a little place to stop and have a beer, have a, a small bite to eat, and maybe a little farm store, I think it would do incredibly well. Mm. And the community there is getting smaller, you know, in terms of the locals, in terms of a holiday destination, the tourism is huge. That's why I say, even if you had it at Bullway, you would probably still catch those same people because they have to drive to the Bullway to get it. Yeah. And uh, so it's either a, a, a little stop to have on your way in or a stop to have on your way out. But um, I think, almost think when it's something like a little, if, if it's in a little town like where you have to stop and go, people are more likely to stop and actually go there, whereas if if it's in Anderberg and you're spending the weekend in Anderberg, it's like, oh, maybe we'll go there on Saturday, you know, and then you never end up going. Um, so there is a lot going on, whereas there's nothing in Boer other than the paragliding up there. I love that area. It's a hard knock to take, but I do think this is going to reignite something that they definitely lost during, during COVID. Just the exposure and all the talk of it again. The remembering that you know Hunters and that place is basically like the like paragliding part of South Africa you know, it's where most people have done their licenses and all started where I started. So I think it's a warm place for everyone. Um I'm I'm looking forward to for them to get back on their feet. Like I said, I, I think some more opportunities are gonna open up. And even likes the, the
0: brewery. Thank you for joining us for part two of our journey to the top of Sani. For more information about Wild Sky and the Backup Buddy campaign, please follow the link in the show notes.